So there's a little bit of business I have to take care of, and the business is I have six tickets to the Columbus Zoo. Oh. Good till the 1st of January. Six of them. They are a $20 value, <laughs> but uh, you can get them for a donation. Uh, all you have to do is put a donation back in the back <laughs> box there. There's that big tall thing. You can a put donation a, box. a donation box, yes. Uh, there's a name for that in Tibetan. I don't know. Yeah, I, don't I call know. it a donation box. Yeah, the donation box back here. So anybody that wants uh, tickets to the Columbus Zoo, just come up after the talk, get them. Uh, and uh, one of uh, the members here has donated those for that purpose. They are a $20 value. <laughs> That's all I'll say. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so I've been coming here since 1999, uh, and Lama Kathy was my first teacher. She also uh, was announcing at that time, as I recall, uh, she was announcing that uh, Kemba Carter Rinpoche, who was the founder uh, of uh, the Columbus KTC, uh, was going to come next week. Um, and, uh, you know, you can come, come and see him. And... Uh, he was also giving refuge, which I did not know what that was. But I said, I want it. Um, basically, I became a Buddhist at that point, so one week after starting, or one or two weeks, I'm not sure. So it's, it's sometimes like that. Some people jump into these things, and that's me. And then there's some people that take the time and have to think it through, and that's fine. Both are great. The problem with waiting is sometimes you never do it. And the problem with jumping is sometimes you don't know what you're getting yourself into. I don't have any regret of doing it, but I did jump. So um, some of you are new and some of what I say therefore will be new to you and that's perfectly okay. Some of the things that you will hear won't make sense, and we will have time uh, at the end of the talk to come up to the microphone and ask questions, and I would encourage your courage in doing that if you have questions. Um, I have to tell you that for many of you who have come regularly, what I say will not be new. You've, you've, you've probably heard what I've said before. And those that know me know that I'm not a particularly educated individual, and I'm certainly not that articulate. So what I ask you to do is try to listen to the meaning of what I say, rather than who's saying it or in the particular way I, I say it. Um, so sort of ignore the fact that I'm a dull and rather handicapped at poor recall. <laughs> Um, and sometimes I get tongue-tied. So all those things are going to be in play here this morning, and I ask your forgiveness for that, but I also ask that uh, your kind attention, because there may be something that might, might be helpful to you. And what I would also say, some of you may leave here and say, that, that didn't bother, I don't know what he was talking about, and that's okay too. Um, not to worry. This is not an exhaustive teaching. 
what I tell you about the subject that I'm covering, Tibetan lamas in old Tibet spent months in retreats and in lama uh, uh, monasteries talking about. So I'm barely touching the surface of what this topic is all about. That being the case, if anybody who knows something of this topic wishes at the end to uh, bring more points out, you're welcome to do that. Uh, I will not be offended because, as I said, this is not any attempt to be exhausted. So what am I going to talk about? Well, it's pretty uncomplicated. I'm going to talk about the preciousness of bodhicitta. You say, and I'm going to define that in a minute. And I'm going to tell you why it's important. <coughs> then I'm going to tell you how you can cultivate, engender that thought. And how you can grow as a result of entertaining this thought. And intermixed in this whole discussion, this talk, is the importance of lineage and the blessing of lineage and the importance of teachers in this lineage. So, bodhicitta, bodhi means enlightened chitta, mind or heart. It's the mind and heart of, of enlightenment. It's the intention to become awakened so that you can free all beings from suffering, from this cycle, endless cycle of suffering called samsara. At first, it's just an aspiration. But as you develop, you engage in actions that lead to your own awakening and the benefit of other beings. Shanti Deva, who was an he was a ninth century saint, eighth or ninth century saint, ninth century saint. Uh, he has this beautiful book, uh, The Way of the Bodhisattva, and I strongly urge you to get that. Uh, it's, it's not so much a book, it's a long poem, uh, and it's explained by uh, Pema Chodron in uh, No Time to Lose, which is another book. So if you're interested in this topic, that would be a good book to, to buy. But Shanti Deva had this beautiful expression about the, uh, uh, in his book, in the beginning of his book, and it goes like this. Just as a flash of lightning on a dark, cloudy night for an instant brightly illuminates all, likewise, in this world, a wholesome thought rarely and briefly appears. That sounds like poetry, and it is, but it's true. I want you to think for just a minute. In the last hour, just in the last hour, how many wholesome thoughts have you entertained? <laughs> Since you got up this morning, the past month, the past year, this lifetime, Put that aside for a minute. Now, in the last hour, how many unwholesome thoughts, thoughts of irritation, anger, frustration, you name it, 
you know, the garden variety of kinds of thoughts that we all entertain all the time. How many of those did you have today, the past week, in this lifetime? Shani Davis right. A wholesome thought is like lightning striking in the night to illuminate the darkness. The th- so we're not even here talking about wholesome actions. We're just talking about wholesome thoughts. That's how rare and how beautiful it is to have this thought of wanting to awaken for the benefit of other beings. And I was thinking about this last night. When I Actually, I wrote this talk last night because I wanted to get with Lama Kathy before I actually did this talk because I wanted to make sure I was, you know, was going to do it right. Uh, so I wrote it last night. By the way, half of it's deleted, so I'm going to just have to talk to you. In the middle, I, like at 12 o'clock, I got tired instead of putting me off button, I hit the delete, and you know how that goes. So. <laughs> but anyway, I was thinking about this last night, uh, how we perform even wholesome acts, and we make them less than wholesome. Those of you who know me know I have a granddaughter that I adore. A couple days ago, I, she has this tricycle, but if she, I live on a hill, and so if she goes on the tricycle by herself, she, she's going to get hurt. So I got this bungee cord, and I tie it to the back of the seat. So we're, we're going down the hill like this. And we did this all around the block. And then we took the, uh, the tricycle to um, the uh, recreation center. And we rode around. And this couple came up to us and said, oh, how beautiful this relationship looks like to us. And, you know, there it is. I'm proud. And all of a sudden I started thinking, (laughs) you know, half of this whole good deed that I'm doing is all about me. Grandpa is proud of being Grandpa and enjoying that. Nothing terrible wrong with that, but it's a tainted kind of uh, thing, you know? So my bodhicitta wanting to awaken to benefit other beings is not always pure. And even my, my, pure, my actions are impure. When we get to the point that there's no more me thinking about me and doing my uh, awakening for the benefit of others, that's called ultimate bodhicitta. I'm not there yet. (laughs) I still have this tainted, but it's okay. You know, I recognized it and worked on it. But most of our thoughts are about the, uh, what the Tibetans call, the Buddhists call, hope for happiness or fear of suffering. Most of our thoughts can be categorized in that way. You know, hope for fame, the fame of being a grandpa, <laughs> fear of insignificance. So we're, we're, we're manipulating our environment because we're fearful of that. We're making with our thoughts are crafted around so we don't become insignificant. We're looking for praise and we're trying to flee from blame. 
We want gain. We don't want loss. So those are all the things we're after. So again, how remarkable it is that even once we have this positive thought about wanting to awaken to benefit other beings. They're rare. Very rare. Recently, I, along with some people from Columbus and Athens, uh, went up to KTD, which is our home monastery, where our founder, Kimbo Karka Rinpoche, is abbot, uh, went and we, uh, we, he gave us the Bodhisattva vow. Is any of you in that group? There's about nine or so. Okay. Uh, so, so what that is, is it's the vow that for the rest of our lives, we will, our intention is to awake for the benefit of other beings, and we don't care how long it takes. It's, it's for however long it takes. That's a pretty big vow, isn't it? Kempokarta Rinpoche is between 93 and 94, depending on how you figure it. He's physically very frail. And he has said that he wills to stay with us, to benefit us. And parenthetically, he also told us he's sticking around till we build the new KTC. I believe that. There are some folks in this world who will themselves beyond what are normal years simply for the benefit of other beings. And I think Kempokarta Rinpoche is one of those. So over a three-day period, he gave us the Bodhisattva vow. And as I said, we vowed to awaken to the benefit of others. You might consider a vow to be sort of a container. It's what we will, within these limits, you might say, within this container, we'll keep our body, mind, um, and hearts within this uh, body, speech, and mind within this container, this container of loving other beings and, and working for our own enlightenment for the benefit of all. That's sort of the way you could consider it. And we, we vowed to stay within that container. I've said that vow, and you probably too if you've been around any length of time, hundreds and hundreds of times, right? But there was something about the way he said it that made me understand really how vast, how beautiful, and how precious such a thought is. Every Buddha, every great teacher, every Bodhisattva has made that vow. Every Buddha started there with that vow. Everyone. That's why it's all so precious. We won't get awake, we won't become awakened without it. And he gave us the courage to say, we don't care how long it takes. We don't care. It doesn't matter. 
I talked to many in attendance after the bestowal of that vow. And what all of us came away with was confidence. Confidence. This is not some fable. This is true. This is possible. I admit, a long time from now, maybe for me, but it's possible. And for a brief instant, with Rinpoche's blessing, I saw that possibility as being real. He gave us that confidence. I want to give you another quote, and it's a quote from Kruzum Peldon, uh, Nectar of Manjushri's Speech, which inspires me to, to talk this talk, but um, I'm not using too much of it except this one quote, and it's a beautiful quote, I think. It does not matter whether they are man or woman, young, old, rich or poor. If the jewel of bodhicitta, the wish to awaken to benefit others, arises in suffering beings who, as beings, till then were languishing in darkness, bound by their past and defilements, they instantly undergo a change in identity. Now they are crowned by the name Child of the Buddhas. They are called Bodhisattvas, heroes and heroines of enlightenment. Bodhisattva can be translated, the sattva part can be translated either as hero or being. I like hero myself because it, it indicates the courage needed. They are called bodhisattvas, heroes and heroines of enlightenment. Their status changes. They are worthy of reverence, even by the Buddhas themselves. When we ended uh, the vow, Rinpoche bowed to us. Because Bodhicitta is his master. And he was bowing to us. How did, how is it possible that ordinary folks like ourselves came away confident in something that seems impossible? How did he, how could he bestow such confidence? Well, I'm going to tell you, I think it's three things. First, Rinpoche has spent his life benefiting others. He's, he's the real deal. He fled from Tibet, fleeing communist Chinese guns and bullets. He came to New York penniless and worked all of his life to build centers such as this all over the country build a beautiful monastery, beautiful stupas. If you haven't gone to that monastery and circumambulated the stupas, I certainly recommend it highly. It's a wonderful experience. He built a retreat center, a three-year retreat for people that want to deepen their practice. He's done all that. And he, he looks very ordinary. One of the things he said, um, 
I'll wait to say that in a minute. So the first thing, you should be able to bestow it because he's the real deal. The second thing is his students have trust in him. Trust is very important in our lineage. Don't try to manufacture it if you don't have it, but it's something you develop over time with your teachers. You test them out. Do they have this bodhicitta? Can they convey that to you? And if they can, they are precious and trust them. So I trust Rinpoche, and because of my trust, I believe what he says. The third thing is, he's an authentic teacher of an authentic lineage. So, to be a bodhisattva, to be someone who desires to awaken for the benefit of others, this requires three things. And it really, you know, any time you're on a spiritual journey, it, these things are required. The first thing is required is a heartfelt desire to become a better person. If you don't, have, if you're complacent, if you say, "Oh, you know," this is, how can you be helped? <laughs> Most people, however, I think, come to uh, practice hurting in some way or another. They're not complacent. And that actually is a good thing. But complacent people feel no need for a spiritual path. The second thing, you have to have an authentic teaching. A truth. A truth that is ancient but ever new. Not some, and I'm going to use a fancy word here, I like it. I learned it in college. Uh, the latest zeitgeist, the latest spirit and mood of the time. You, see, you know, I don't. I love yoga centers. I think they're wonderful places, but this is where you can sort of get this zeitgeist thing going. Um, you, uh, I, I taught a couple, and I, I'm telling a story. Don't tell this back in Zanesville, okay? <laughs> don't go back there and tell this story. But, <laughs> oh my gosh, go back. That's not bad, it's really. I went to a, a, a yoga center and I taught meditation. And, um, you know, the traditional way you teach meditation. And basically, I bored them all. <laughs> And, uh, and because uh, their yoga teacher had gone to Costa Rica and got uh, spent lots of money from this uh, this couple who who teaches uh, this fancy kind of meditation where you you uh, well just do all kinds of different things and I, I won't go into the description but you know it's like this is a fad where did they get it they made it up. <laughs> And these people made it up, and they, and, but they, they've merchandised it. They've become merchants of what they call their truth. And they're selling it at a very expensive price. Not the $20 for the ticket to... <laughs> much more expensive. The third thing that you have to have besides 
a desire and a teaching, you have to have an authentic teacher. We've talked about that. If you don't have an authentic teacher who's using the authentic truth, what you're going to have is somebody who's going to be teaching their own delusion that probably has emerged from their arrogant mind. So you need these three ingredients. Otherwise, you're going to be attending the temple called Tell the Complacent What They Want. I'm being a little sarcastic here. Pardon me. So desire, teacher, and teaching are essential to the spiritual path, and it's essential to growing on this path. And present on that day that we took that vow was an authentic teacher, an authentic teaching, and the desire of everyone there, a heartfelt desire to become and awaken and to do that for the benefit of others. That was, you might say, the, it wasn't magic, but it certainly felt like magic. So, once we have this desire, and once we receive this vow, how do we develop bodhicitta? How do we develop this desire so that it becomes engaged action. How do we do that? You and I are not monks or nuns, right? We don't, we haven't, we're not selling. We live busy lives, we work, we, you know, and how many times I've heard people in private interviews say, I'm just too busy (laughs) to do the dark. It's just, you know, can't do it. Is that true? Not according to Karmapa. He said, and here's what he said, certainly you have to have a certain amount of time. You have to carve out some time every day to practice. That's without. But that's only part of it. And we forget that other part. We think we're only practicing on the cushion, and if we're not practicing like four hours a day, we're not doing the right thing. Well, that's probably practical for most of us, unless we go on a retreat once in a while. So how do we practice? Here's what Karmapa said. He said, the idea that practice is a time set aside to sit down and do formal practice is one thing. But our practice is actually something that needs to be put into practice in the way we conduct our lives. Those times, and here's, I love this point. I think it's beautiful. He said, those times when we are making connections with other people are the times we need to observe our minds, when we should improve our minds, and our good thoughts. That's practice. So every so you and I have an opportunity every time we meet another person to practice. Today I was coming here, I had my, my schedule timed out to I would be here within five minutes of when uh, the book study started. So I had to fill my and I had included in that the time to fill my gas tank. <laughs> 
So I go up to the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, oh, the gas pump. The gas pump. Yeah, yeah. yeah. see, tongue tied. So I, I go to the, the, the gas pump, put in my card, doesn't work. The computer's oh. down. Oh. Blows my five minutes. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to be late. So I, I sort of did this. It wasn't, it was not that violent, but I did that up my hand you know, like that. And the woman at the cash register was observing me. So I walk in. And say, you have to pay inside, okay? So I go in to pay. And she said, oh, she fell over backwards. Saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I wish, you know, it just happened. But she said, so many people coming in here and are so upset. And they've given me, and she was in tears. She was, she was, and here's a woman probably making $8 an hour at best. Looks like she was struggling herself, and everyone's abusing her. By the time I'd thrown up my, thrown up my hands and got to her, you know, it's no big deal, you know. Contemplate the uh, illusion-like nature of reality. It's no big deal, you know. So I said, oh, no, no problem. It's no big deal, you know. And she said, but everybody's so upset. And I said, well, people have their issues, you know. Yeah. <laughs> What I gained from that is um, how our unwholesome thoughts and actions towards other people, and I'm sure no one assaulted her physically, but verbally assaulted her and were unpleasant to her, ruined her day and probably the rest of her day and into the evening. Who knows what the consequences of that might be? And so the fact that, and I'm not, I'm not, I guess I am bragging, but, but the fact that I came in and I said a nice word uh, sort of changed the chemistry for her. Maybe she could see the day a little bit different. How rare and how precious one moment of kindness for another being can be. So to go on with what so it is at that intersection of one person to another person, you can practice. No excuse. <laughs> so if any of you ever come for an interview to Lama Kathy and say, I'm just too busy, she's going to say, mm, well, let's, let's look at that a little bit closer, right? He said, Karmapa said, if we restrict our practice to meditation in the shrine room, we may feel peace and well-being at the time, but then when we go to work and are overcome by afflictions or our minds become disturbed, we may feel that our practice is not helping us. Our practice is those moments. Enlightened beings have, and we're, we're, we're not enlightened, all right, but enlightened beings make no distinction between being on the cushion and off the cushion. The same mind, the same heart, the same awareness they have on the cushion, they carry on. We need to attempt that. It's a gradual process. Don't get all replimped about this. They, you know, it's, it's, it's a gradual process. And take it with some lightness in your being. Don't when we were at the most serious point in the bestowal of that vow, 
You know what Rinpoche was doing as his words were being translated? He was playing with teddy bears. People offer him toys and stuff, and he plays with them. And I think that's as if to say, take the vow seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously. Be a little bit light. Be easy on yourself. Be serious. It's a serious vow. But don't take yourself so seriously. I think that's what he was saying. At least that's what he was saying to me at that time. And recognize that every day we're going to make mistakes. And that's okay. We were talking about this uh, among uh, the people doing Nindra. Each one of us had a mistake they talked about. And... uh, all of us recognize that that's sort of, you know, par for the course, and we're not going to give up. That's important. Perseverance, one of the virtues. Diligence is one of the virtues. So we keep, we keep coming back. And Rinpoche would tell us, I think, that maybe we've fallen a hundred times. But the hundred and first time we get up, we'll be awake. So we don't we don't get discouraged. Going on with what Karmapa said, he said, it is very important that we create imprints during our formal practice sessions and then try to bring them fully into our lives in post-meditation. At the conclusion of the Bodhisattva vow, Kempo Kartarimbache began to weep. And um, if you've ever seen your mother weep or your father weep, as a child, you just automatically yourself begin to weep, even though you don't know why your mom or your dad's weeping. And that was with us the same. The whole entire group of us were weeping because he was, he, he well, and he didn't just break down once. I've seen him break down before and weep. But he repeatedly had difficulty getting through it to the point some of his attendant monks were concerned that he might not be able to complete it because he cried. <clears throat> And he was crying because he recognized how precious it was that he led these students to take this vow. He knew it. That was in his heart. And so we all wept. The other thing he said was, he said when he was younger, and the 16th come up. We're now on the 17th come up, and the 16th come up was his teacher, and he, and he came to the United States. And Rinpoche said that, he asked Karmapa, will there ever be bodhisattvas in America? And uh, Karmapa said, yeah, there will be. And then uh, Rinpoche said, and today, I know that uh, Karmapa's prophecy is true. He also said, there are people walking 
in your midst that look very ordinary. You couldn't tell them from another person in the crowd. But they are bodhisattvas. Finally, he said, today you are a bodhisattva. Then he, excuse my expression, there's no younger children, so I can say the word. He, he, he said something sort of kick-ass. He said, now act like it. <laughs> so his, his blessing was that he, he bestowed the vow, and now he said, go out and complete it. Act like it. Don't be afraid. Have the courage of the vow. Have the courage that every Buddha who's ever been began with his vow. So let me summarize. Bodhicitta is a desire to awaken to benefit others. This thought is precious and rare. This thought is engendered through our contact and subsequent trust in authentic teachers and teachings. We actively engage in the implementation of this vow through our contact with other beings. It, we are imperfect but we can have the confidence that it can be accomplished. We have lots of time. Half the half the talk I didn't. I think it's good when I delete because I, apparently what got deleted was unnecessary, not important, and time consuming. So uh, we do have plenty of time. And if anybody has any thoughts, concerns, um, uh, or something they want to add, they're welcome to do that now. No question is stupid. Good morning. Good morning. Can you discuss the idea of merit and its relationship? Can you discuss the idea of merit and or the concept of merit and uh, the dedication of merit and how that relates back to Bodhicitta? Sure. Um, I'll give it a stab. By the way, that was one of my first questions ever to Kempo Karthi Rinpoche. And in his kindness, he spent probably 45 minutes discussing it. Yeah, like I heard a, someone talk to me about it. It was one of Trangu's uh, students talking to me about it, a senior student. I think we talked about this, maybe, um, and it blew my mind. <laughs> and since you're talking about Bodhicitta today, I thought I'd bring it up again. So we'll stay up there, because you might have some comments to make here. Um, I'm not a Kimbo Karthi Rinpoche, so I can't give you a 45-minute explanation. I will give you what was one time something I caught on to that helped me understand that, and it is that merit is that which 
opens your mind up to the possibilities of awakening. That what what you're doing allow opens your mind up. For example, to give an example, if I were to curse and yell and scream at the 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 uh, gas station attendant, that's a closed down mind. That's not going to lead to my happiness or hers. If, on the other hand, I did something wholesome and meritorious, I would open my mind up, I would open up her mind, and that is a small step, a meritorious deed, leading eventually to a greater awakening. So it's those, merit is the accumulation of those kinds of actions that'll lead to awakening. That's the best I can do for the moment. Well, McCarthy, what do you think? Is that okay? I'm super happy. Okay. <laughs> what were some of the other things you said? Me? Yeah. If, if I've got the imprimatur from, uh, imprimatur is a Catholic term, I guess. Catholic term. Yeah, was, but uh, if I get it from Lama Kathy, I think I'm okay. I don't know what else you want me to add. You said that you were impressed with some of the other. Um, the person talked about merit being almost it was like a force in the universe in that um, you know if we cultivated the merit and dedicated uh, uh, dedicated you know like I mean I've heard it said like you know meditation is kind of a neutral thing it's kind of somewhere between waking and sleeping and it's kind of but if you dedicate the merit of it, it okay it, and not, it, that, yeah. but you know as an example but yes. the actual okay. You yeah. know, if we actually, whether it is or not, I don't know. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, in doing so, you're cultivating bodhicitta. Yeah. So, I, the only, I, I understand what you're saying. I think that's uh, a way to look at it. I also look at it as um, a potential within you, right. a force within you, sure. that um, by our acts of kindness and so forth right. becomes exposed to us. Because what keeps us, what keeps us from seeing our true kind nature is all the unkind things we do. Merit, uh, dedicating merit again could be you could give a huge talk on that. But the way I see it, it's a skillful way of not taking pride. Sure. You know, you do something nice, you say, oh, I did say something for me. And you say, in dedicating merit, you're actually saying, may it, may it benefit others, all beings. I give it away. I don't want to keep it. It's, not, it's really nothing you can keep anyway. <laughs> Although, by dedicating it, you never lose that possibility, that, 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 that potential. Right. I don't know if this relates. I've never. I don't think I've actually ever read. I mean, uh, Trungpa. You know, and I don't know if this, I'm kind of reaching here a little bit, but I know. You know, there's a whole idea of spiritual materialism. So yeah. I'm wondering about how that yeah. works with that's like why I was our careful. practice. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's look why. at me. I'm doing Nundro. Yeah, that's <laughs> what. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing, but uh, but you don't you don't want to take. Uh, you don't want to take excessive pride, and you don't want to see it as something like uh, I, uh, you know, I've got twenty-five cents worth of merit. And right. If I do this, I'll get fifty cents worth of merit. The, the deed is far less important, right? Far less important than the state of mind 
um, and your motivation right. in doing the booth. That's far more right. important. I was thinking the mayor could be able, you know, that even if he just were like, okay, merit is a force in the universe, okay, whatever, but it's just as a concept, like that could be a way to mitigate that uh, that kind of spirit, I guess, spiritual materialism or own attachment to our our own yeah. practice, or whatever. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. No, thank you. <laughs> One or two more questions. Got another taker. Good morning. Uh, you were talking about um, trusting your teacher, yes. and as a result of that trust, you believed in what the teacher said. But I've heard that the only thing you have to believe in Buddhism is that we have Buddha nature. So I'm a little confused by this range of, of what we need to believe in. Okay. Uh, first of all, your trust in a teacher can never be forced. It is pointless and worthless if you, it's forced. I mean, the kind of trust that Milarepa had for Marpa, that's legendary, right? I mean, Marpa would tell Milarepa, go build a tower, and Milarepa would build it. And Marpa would say, tear it down, and he'd tear it down, and he did it over and over and over and over again, because he trusted his teacher. What, to, to go along with what you're saying, what you have to begin to trust in is in the Buddha nature of your teacher, that they they represent that. They, you can see it. And that takes time. And if you don't have it, you cultivate it. If you don't have the, you know, the ultimate teacher right now, that's okay. Keep aspiring, keep praying for that teacher. But I would warn you, don't ignore the teachers that here are here in your midst. You know, there's some really good teachers that are teaching. Don't ignore them. They they all may look ordinary, but they have made a commitment. So it's like that. So I think it is the teacher is, you might say, par excellence, an example of Buddha nature, and that is something that you discover. Well, I'm going to keep challenging you here. Okay. My, my original teacher, when he was giving a teaching one time, said, he said, he stopped, he said, I don't want you to believe anything that I'm saying. I want you yes. to remember it. Yeah. And so when you have that experience, then it really resonates. Yeah. I, I, I think I understand. I think. But I'm going to put it this way. In, in the beginning, you should test everything. You should question everything. And ask questions and, 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 and go with that. But at some point, without faith, without trust, you will no, go no further in this lineage. That's the way it is. I have said the Bodhisattva vow, I couldn't tell you how many times. But on that day, because I trusted 
my teacher, who was authentic, who was teaching a real teaching, it happened for me. Brief moment. So it's like that. Don't the realizations come from your own experience and not from something that you A Buddha can't make you a Buddha. Only you can do that. That's true. But it's sort of like this. You need the blessing and the example of a teacher to show you the way. But only you can do it. Blessing is two things. It is your teacher's authenticity, his uh, genuineness, but it's also your devotion and your trust, and they have to link together. So they're both important. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you very much. Don't give in too soon. <laughs> if I could just make a comment. Oh, please. His question. Yes. There's a big difference in belief and trust. Okay. If, and I think that where he's getting keep, caught keep, up. Keep going with that. Okay, I think that he's getting caught up in the definition of belief. Okay. As opposed to the definition of trust. Okay. So if we believe in something, okay, that's very different than trust. Oh, I, I get it. Does that make sure. sense? Mm -hmm. I mean, a child can believe yes. in something, or a person can believe in something, but they may not trust that. Gotcha. So um, we can believe that the police are there to help us, but we may not trust a single policeman. Yeah. So um, that's just you know my comment on what I've. Yeah. hearing between yeah. the, the discourse thank you, between that's, the two that's a good, so. All right, that's a good distinction you. thank you I, just, I have a comment too okay. um, I guess how I think about it is so you know, like when I first started coming here you know you hear all these teachings but you don't you don't believe them you, like you said you question everything you keep questioning questioning that and so there's no trust there but once you meditate and once you start actually experiencing those things for yourself you develop the trust because you, you now know that what they were saying is true. And then the more that you experience those yeah. things, the more that that trust is cultivated. That's very good. Spot on. Thank you. Oh, please. This will have to be the last one, I think. On the phone, thank you for your teaching. And uh, I like the comment that you said, don't ignore, ignore the teachers in your midst. I, I'm having trouble hearing you. Um, I like the comment uh, of yours. Um, you said, don't ignore the teachers in your midst. And um, my question is, how do you work with um, negative people in your, in your life? Mm -hmm. And um, I have an um, extremely negative coworker. Yeah. And I'm not saying, um, like, I'm better than her, like, I'm yeah, so positive. Yeah because I know I have many afflictions I have to work on. Yes. Um, could you give, like, a some comment? Advice? Yeah, some advice on how maybe, like, how to work with her and how to benefit her, I guess. Yeah. Thank you. So um, I think one of the things, since you know this person is an habitual source of irritation, to you. Practice before you see them. Practice before you see them. So on the cushion in the morning, 
put him or her, it doesn't matter, him or her image in your mind in front of you. Recognize they just like you suffer. Take on their suffering and give them your kindness. Practice that. Why that changes the, the that changes your perspective a bit because you see her or him as inflicting pain on you, and you fail to see that most of that infliction of pain is due to their own troubled heart. And so we're going to rehearse this before I even see them. I'm going to I'm going to think of them in a different way today. And try that. And look at it another way. The teachings say that person is your best teacher because you can gauge how much progress you're making in bodhicitta by how you relate to that person. I had a, a, a when I was director of children's services way back in the dark ages, uh, I had a uh, person who was wanting my job and they didn't get it and I got it. And I was a new person on the bike. They could not stand me. And so I did this practice. I, I will not lie to you. I won't say that she all of a sudden became my best buddy and we all got hugging and stuff like that. It, it did not happen. But my comfort at being around this irritation was uh, I felt more relaxed about it because I had a different perception of it. Of course, in any situation, uh, we're not saying to submit to injustice, if, particularly if that person is uh, uh, higher up than you. No, you don't. You, know, you, you do what you need to do to protect your right as a worker or whatever it is. But how do you perceive this relationship? And what are you going to do about it? And you could simply be upset from now on. Where does that get you? Yeah. Have you been upset for a long time with this person? No. But, but for a time. Yeah. But, but later on, yeah. So you become upset. And I think, who is a doctor... What's his name? Doctor. Doctor Phil. Doctor Phil. The TV doctor. <laughs> yeah, the, the TV doctor. He said. He, he said. Uh, how's that working for you? No, does being irritated is that working for you? Well, I just go. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, you know. So so that's okay. That's a gauge. That's uh, that's all. All that's saying is. Gee, I still got some more growth to do. This, this, you know, I, we, I've still got some more things to do. One, Kempokarthi Rinpoche said that one of the most important lessons we have to learn in order to be on the Dharma path is to learn that most of our suffering is self-imposed. We cause it ourselves. You think she's causing you the pain. You're causing your pain because you're reacting to what she's doing. So you have to work a little bit with that. Now, I'm not saying there are not irritating, <laughs> exasperating people in the world, but 
our reaction to that is we control that. So um, I think it's time. I, thank you, thank you, thank you for your attention. I, I, uh, I felt your attention uh, and it uh, made me want to say something that would be helpful to you. So thank you for your attention and uh, yeah, I want you to have a, a good day. We'll end uh, by dedicating the merit. If you don't know this prayer, and many of you will not, that's okay. Just think that what good I have done by coming here, may it benefit beings, particularly the next person I come in contact that irritates the poop out of me. So by this merit, may we become omniscient. From this attainment, after defeating evil faults, through the endless storm of birth, old age, sickness, and death, may we liberate all beings from suffering in the three worlds. So just for a minute, just, just relax before we go out to battle. <laughs> Let's just relax. Thank you. Again, I've got tickets. Oh, yeah? Six tickets. <laughs>